Hello. This morning we are continuing in our series called The Happy Life. Um, this, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at how, for the Christian, um, true and lasting happiness, joy, can be found. Hurrah! It's been brilliant. Um, last week, we looked at the fact that good news is better than bad news, and this morning, we're looking at the fact that done is better than do. Now, how many of you love a to-do list? Give me a show of hands. How many of you? Oh, my goodness, there's so many of you. My husband, James, loves a to-do list. I am always finding little scraps of paper, can anyone identify, all around the house with his penciled to-do lists. If he's really honest, I think he wishes that I was better at my to-do lists. I admit, I am not a very organised person, and I admit that to do a to-do list um, would probably really help me to prioritise some of the things I should do. It would probably help me to procrastinate less, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, and I'm open to that, but I've got a question. How many of your to-do lists actually help you to get done? How many of those to-do lists help you to get done? How many of you have been able to tick through your to-do lists all the way to the bottom before starting another one? Just saying. (laughs) We are a busy people with lots of things to do, and I'm sure I don't need to convince you of this, inside and outside of the church. In fact, church life, it can be the worst. There's a whole new set of things to be involved with. Join this community, sign up for this course, come to this prayer meeting, come to this meeting. James and I have to sync our diaries so that we don't double book. In fact, we have to put into our diaries night in um, (laughs) during the week on a few occasions to make sure that we actually spend time together. That's crazy. Busy, busy. Our busyness actually has a lot to do with our happiness. Why is that? Because we believe that what we are achieving through our activities will ultimately bring about happiness. That's why we do them. What is the mantra of our current age? Because we live in a culture that applauds the busy life. We live in a culture that shouts, do, do, do more, do more. One of the most basic rules, if we think about it, of our Western life is that work equals reward. From our earliest days, from primary school, reception even. You know, I've got little children, seven, five, and three. And even from age three in nursery, our children have targets to meet and goals they need to achieve. The call of our culture is that we need to find out who we are and what we're good at. And then we need to be successful. And then we need to carry on being successful. It's relentless. Find out who you are. Be good at it, continue to be good at it, achieve, succeed. The whole of the education system is based on working hard in order to be successful. It underlies everything. And you might say, well, yes, that's obvious. We understand these principles. You reap what you sow. You get out of something what you put into something. You know, you work hard now, you train hard now, and then you will get at what you're aiming for. You will achieve that grade, that degree, that job, that position, that medal, whatever it is you're aiming for, and then you'll be happy. As a former teacher, I've said it so many times. You get what you deserve. And as a mother to my kids, I've said it so many times, practice makes perfect. And it's not even just about those bigger things, it's also about the little things that we say. Brush your teeth well so you won't get holes. Eat more fruit and then you'll be strong. Do more of this, work harder at this, be better at this, and then you'll have a happy life. 
Do more, work harder, make your life count. Do more, work harder, make your life count. That message is totally at odds with the Bible, and we'll get there. But in order to grasp what it means for us to live under the freedom of a gospel of done, we really need to dig a little bit deeper and find out why instinctively we actually feel really comfortable with a gospel that says, do, do more, work harder. Because I think even this mantra would, would apply into what we'd consider to be spiritual activities. I wonder if how many of you, if you were really honest, feel guilty that you're not a better Christian. If you could just read your Bible every day, read more spiritual books, if only you could just step out more into that gift of the Spirit, if only that, that fruit of the Spirit could be oh, more manifest in your life. Work harder. Do better, try harder, work harder, be better, work harder, be better. It's the mantra of our modern age. And if we're honest, it's not just this external pressure. It's echoed within us. It's this nagging inner voice telling us that what we do is never enough. I don't know if you can relate, but I can. I hear it too many times. Underpinning our busyness is a desire to be successful. And it's gone deep, really deep. Because it's not just about an end goal. It's not just that we work really hard and we're busy because at the end we have this picture of what success looks like. Actually, a lot of it is wrapped up in identity because we believe that what we do, what we give our time to, our work, our talents, our responsibilities, they define who we actually are. What we do says what we are. That's what we believe. There's an advertising campaign that um, has this TV, this tagline, and it's, you know, it's been on TV and it's been in posters, and it's, it's quite powerful. And, and the, the, the message is, we are all what we have done and what we will do. That, that's the message. We are all what we have done and what we will do. That is who you are. Is that true for the Christian? I'm a mum at home, I'm not employed, and I haven't been for a number of years now, and it always feels strange when I get asked what I do. Um, I used to feel really tempted to sort of say what I did, and then kind of talk about what I used to do when I was employed. You know, I used to be a teacher, you know, I was actually a head of department, don't you know? And I would kind of keep the conversation there, because it's where I felt most comfortable, because it felt like that's where I was being successful, that's where I was achieving. And that's kind of where I'd keep the conversation. More recently, I felt more at peace with what I do at home. So when people ask me, what do you do? I feel more at peace to be able to say, well, I'm a mum at home. And, you know, there are really tough moments with it, but it's such a privilege. It's so rewarding. And, you know, those things are true. But underlying all of my responses is a need I have, if I'm really honest, to justify what I do and to make what I do seem important, impressive even, underlying that question, what do you do? You instinctively want to be impressive because actually, if we dig even deeper, my, what I do says something about who I am. And if I'm really honest, what I really want is approval for who I am. I want recognition for who I am. That longing, it's in us that drive to work harder and be better and it's locked in that need for identity and approval. Um, some time ago, Madonna was interviewed by Vogue magazine and she was talking about her career and this is what she said and I think it's really important. It was so articulate. 
She said this, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. This is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I am still mediocre and uninteresting until I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I've become somebody. somebody. I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Wow. Now, I tell you one thing about that woman. She knows herself better than many of us know ourselves. That she really does know herself to be able to say it like that. Her sense of self, her need for self-worth, to be sure that she is somebody rather than a nobody. It compels her to keep working hard. How many of us can identify with that? To keep achieving more and more that deep need to prove that we are somebody after all. I think it aches inside all of us. It fuels our activity. It fuels our diaries. It fuels our endless activity. It burns so deep and it keeps us hungry for approval and for acceptance. If we think about the theme of identity, it dominates our films, it dominates our books. We love it. You are what you make of yourself. It's a really attractive gospel, isn't it? It's really attractive. You are what you make of yourself. We are in the age of the selfie. Um, James last night, um, last week alluded to um, our love affair with technology. And um, if we think about the selfie, if we think about um, our phones, if we think about technology and a, a particular logo, in, um, the bitten apple, I think you probably will know what I'm talking about. If we think about that logo... Actually, there's never been a logo more apt to capture something of what we prize so much as a culture, which is our independence from God, our autonomy, individuality. You know, we talk about this as the age of the individual, individuality. What is that? It's, it's us being able to work out what distinguishes us above the rest, what makes us unique, because that's where we find our identity. That's what makes us special. How are we different to everybody else? We prize it in our culture. We want to define who we are, so we're autonomous. You know, no one else can tell me who I am. I decide who I am, and I'm going to make something of myself. So what I need is the freedom to be able to express that, and that is my fight. My fight is to express who I am. That is the message of this world, and if you want proof of that, that autonomy and identity are the narratives of our time, let's think about this chorus from a... From a very, very successful Disney film, Frozen. I would sing it to you, but I have a cold. So I'm not going to. <clears throat> it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. And you know, it feels good. It really does. It's like the angst. It's like, woo. <laughs> it feels good. But you know what the irony of that is? You know, no wrong, no right, no rules for me, I'm free. Straight after singing that, liberated Elsa goes and builds herself a castle of ice. And she locks herself into it. She shuts the doors. She shuts the windows. And you know, that is a picture for us. That is a metaphor for us of our time. It is really sad. Never has our culture talked about individual freedom so much but experienced it so little. 
Dr. Alain Ehrenberg. He's a French sociologist, and he's written a book called Weariness of the Self. It's a great title. I imagine it's not at all cheery, um, but it looks into why depression and anxiety have become the most diagnosed mental disorders in the world. And he says that today, incidences of anxiety and depression are higher than they've ever been. Now, that conclusion probably won't surprise us. You know, there are unprecedented levels of anxiety and depression. But his research concludes that anxiety and depression are on the rise today because of increased feelings of inadequacy that arise from a social context in which success is attributed to and expected of the autonomous individual. We believe that success will make us happy, but the pressure of having to find out who we are and, and fight to be able to express who we are and to be successful and to be impressive, it's creating unprecedented levels of inadequacy within us. We feel inadequate. I'm not good enough. Am I good enough? I'm not good enough. That message we are a busy people. We are intent on being successful. And we believe that success will bring us happiness. That message, you are what you make of yourself. So, you know, you've got one shot, make it a good one. And yet, arguably, we're less happy than we've ever been before. Something isn't right. Something is really wrong. So that is the gospel of this age, the, the false gospel of this age, that you are what you make of yourself. And it drives us into relentless activity, constantly moving from one thing to the next to prove that we are somebody after all, because that's when we'll be happy. You know, the truth of God's word says something entirely different to every other voice you're going to hear. It says that there is a gospel, it's true, and it speaks done over your life. It says it is finished over your life. It tells us that we can only discover our real selves in relation to the one who made us. I mean, it's not rocket science. To be able to really understand who I am, I need to understand who I am in relation to the one who made me. How could I ever find out who I am apart from God? How could I ever be at peace with who I am apart from being in relationship who, with the one who formed me in my mother's womb? See, on the cross with his dying breath, Jesus said, it is finished. But what was done? What was accomplished? The cross is just, it's, it's breathtaking and it's incredible and it's, the, it's foolishness to the world. But for those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And the cross is it's one of those things where you could explain it and you can explain it to a five-year-old. It was explained to me when I was five, really simply, that Jesus died on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven. And so you can respond to that, Hannah, said my mum, by saying, I'm sorry for what I've done wrong. I put my trust in you, Jesus. Can you come and live in my heart? Really simple. Really, really simple. But as we mature and grow and as other voices get louder and louder, our grasp of the cross needs to be fresh and it needs to be deep and it needs to penetrate us. It needs to affect us. For us to be able to resist the lies of the false gospels of this age... We need to be able to understand what was accomplished on the cross and live in the good of it every day and be reminded about it every single day. So what was accomplished? When Jesus said, it is finished, what was he talking about? Let's rewind a little bit. See, the Bible says that our brokenness and our need for significance is real. We do really need to feel significant. Why? 
Because sin has robbed us of security. Sin has robbed us of intimacy with God. If we think back to that, that bitten apple, back to Adam and Eve, Paul says in Romans 5 verse 12, Therefore, and this is bad news, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And when we're talking about sin, we're talking about our disobedience, our rebellion against God. There are, um, you know, when you turn on the news, when you read papers, there are some shocking stories that we can read and that we can feel sickened by like a few months ago, and um, the news broke out that um, migrants are being sold openly in modern-day slave markets in Libya. I mean, you hear that, you just think, how is that possible? How can one human being do that to another human being? Or when we hear news about another sex scandal and another sex abuse scandal, we instinctively, when we see what people are capable of doing believe we feel someone's got to pay someone's got to pay for that but the bible's clear all of us have sinned see rebellion against god that actually exists in all of our hearts has robbed us of our truest identity and separation separation from god has messed us all up you were made in the image of god and your life is supposed to say something about how wonderful he is. That is the point. That's why he made you. You were made in the image of God with worth and dignity and value to say something, to proclaim something about how good he is and how great he is. But we run away and we look to find meaning apart from God. Our pride, our selfishness, our anger, our lust... They deface us as image bearers. It doesn't take long when we look at human history and long when we look at situations today and when we look at our own lives to see that something is deeply wrong. Our sin tears apart creation, literally. And it's not a fun thing to talk about. It's really not. It's completely anti-cultural to talk about what sin is. But let's be real. It rips apart the world. It unleashes destruction from my angry words that wound when I lose it to world wars where people get blown up and obliterated. You know, it, it, it wreaks destruction. Our sin is a power that has wreaked destruction across the face of the earth. We can't save ourselves. I love that word about rescue that we came, that came in worship. We can't save ourselves. We can't restore what's been lost. We need to be rescued. And the punishment for that sin is separation from God because he's holy, completely other to us. Separation from God, when we think about what separation from God is, it's death. Ultimately, it's death. Why? Because he's the life giver. And if you're separated from the life giver, then you die. But God so loved the world. He didn't leave us alone. God so loved the world that he sent his son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. What breathtaking good news. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, always had a rescue plan. They didn't get to the last book of the Old Testament and think, oh, right, we need a new way. We need, we need a different plan, guys. Come on. You know, this has been planned from eternity. 
Jesus laid aside his majesty, gave up everything for us. He lived among us for a while and, you know, he was like us in every way except he didn't join in our rebellion against the Father. Like us in every other way, but he did not sin. He was perfect. He did not join in against the rebellion. And because of that, Jesus and only Jesus can rescue us, take the punishment that we deserved upon himself. You know, as a child, I remember thinking about the cross and my parents would, yeah, Easter particularly, put on, you know, the passion and would have to watch it. And I used to hate watching. I used to hate the violence, seeing what, what happened to Jesus. I used to remember hiding behind the sofa. But I remember a nagging doubt I used to have, which was, I get that this is awful, but lo- I knew that lots of people died like that. And I kept thinking, well, what's so special? Why, 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 did Je- what, what, why, why was it okay for Jesus to take on our sin? See, only Jesus could die a death that would save humanity because only Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Only Jesus was pure and right. God invaded our brokenness in a new way. And his solution for dealing with the problem of sin, nobody was expecting it. Nobody was expecting it. It was so surprising. Let's read from Colossians 1, verse 15. It's incredible scripture. Probably familiar to a lot of you. But let's just let the the Spirit of God make it alive again in us. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by his blood on his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is the gospel of done. That is the best news you are ever going to hear. I was once hostile to even the idea of God. I was once far away from him. But the cross has reconciled me back to life. The cross has reconciled me back to God. Back to the one who made me. Back to the one who loves me. I can now, look, I mean, look at that scripture. You are now holy and blameless and above reproach. How do I get to be holy and blameless? Like, I'm messed up. Like, how do I get to be holy and forgiven and blameless? Like, how is that possible? And then we cast our minds back to Calvary and read in John 19. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. The soldiers then mocked, beat, ridiculed, spat on, despised, rejected him. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. 
When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Crucifixion is arguably the worst form of execution. It wasn't just an execution, it was utter humiliation. When they found bodies of people that, you know, were crucified, um, you know, they had their legs broken, they've had, they had you know, nails, obviously, they, were, they had to hang there. Um, some of the wood that's been found was from an olive tree, which actually, when we think about the crucifixion, we often think that they were kind of elevated quite high up. And, you know, from research, it was more likely that they were eye level. You were literally looking straight into people's eyes when you hung there. Criminals would have been stripped naked and they would hang there publicly until they died of exhaustion or suffocation as blood filled up their lungs as they were trying to breathe. Horrible and inhumane for everyone who had to suffer that way. But when we go back to that scripture in Colossians, and it says of Jesus, for by all things, by him all things were created by him, and it says in him all things hold together. Crucifixion took on a new meaning when Jesus was hung on it. Because if you think for a moment what it meant to crucify Jesus, you know, I was just thinking, I was planning this, thinking just even the nails that were driven into him. You know, we were just sung. He was pierced for our transgressions. We heard that scripture, amazing. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was despised, he was rejected. You know, as he was on that cross and those nails were driven in, he had created the chemical compound iron. You know, that's mad. He was pierced by something he had created. And it just blows my mind. You know, when, when those nails pierced his flesh... And he, you know, his nervous system registered pain. He designed that nervous system. He, un- he understood how it worked perfectly because he had already created it. And then he experienced it. The pain, the anguish. Colossians says, in him all things hold together. You know, he got a nailed to a tree that he had created. That wood he had created. The people around him, they, they were created by him. They could only breathe as they were crucifying him, because he ordained that they could still live. That's, that's crazy. That is crazy. Nails didn't keep Jesus on the cross, nor did the, the Roman soldiers. Love kept him there. The love of the Trinity kept him hanging there. On the cross, the wrath of the Father, his fury, you like, that our disobedience was directed and focused on the Son. As they'd planned from eternity, on the cross, Jesus, as he hung there, absorbed all the sin of mankind, all our rebellion, onto himself and became the perfect sacrifice. He died the death that we deserve to die. And because he was without sin, humanity, we got a new representative. Humanity was punished in Jesus. His death on the cross through faith becomes our death on the cross. And his, rector, his resurrected life becomes our resurrected life. It is finished. It is finished. His saving work was complete. He did it all. By faith, we receive what Jesus has done. His perfect performance becomes our perfect performance. And he took the penalty. And it's the most unbelievable exchange. 
You see, when we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that he has been raised, we are saved. He didn't stay dead. He conquered the grave. When we look at the cross, it is an empty one. And when we look at the grave, it is empty because he is alive and he was victorious over all the things that, that we were, that are our enemies. Now, through faith, the verdict on how significant your life is has already been made. Your life is eternally significant because you are loved with an everlasting love. He chose us. We have been redeemed. We're no longer held under the power of sin. We have been freed. Because of Jesus, we get to get call God our Father. We have a new identity. So yes, I'm a mum, and I'm a wife, and you know, I was, slash, I'm a teacher, and I'm definitely a substandard housewife. But not ultimately. Those things ultimately don't define me. I am a child of God delighted over, adopted into his family. Those things give my life ultimate dignity. Those things give my life worth. You know, in a culture, it lies to you when it says that you are all what you have done and what you will do. That, that is a lie. Good day, bad day, messed up past, present or future failure, if you are a Christian today, you are his. That is your identity. You are his. Regardless of your past, regardless of anything you've ever done, and regardless of anything you'll ever do, you are his. Your truest self found entirely in relation to the one who formed you and who knows you and loves you. You are approved of. You are delighted over. It is finished. Our work, our activity, it can't contribute anything towards our salvation. Not a thing from beginning to end it is the undeserved favor of God lavished on us. And his grace frees us from the mastery of works and activity. It does. That slavery, do more, work harder. You're not good enough. It frees us from that. You see, we are not autonomous. Because of our union with Christ, we say like Paul, we must say like Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. I am not in charge anymore. I have been freed from the tyranny of sin and death, and now I have a different Lord. Now I have a good king ruling in my life, and I am his. My life is his. I'm not autonomous. I'm not in charge of my destiny. It is, I am his, and he has given me a destiny and a future that I am so excited about because I didn't deserve any of it. Through faith, we believe that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than all the empty claims we can hear upon this earth. So what is our response? How does this truth, this, this, this gospel of done, how does that affect us every day? How can we live in the good of the power of the cross every single day? Well, first off, Romans 12 verse 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's something we all need to do and continue to do, renew our minds. So what do we believe in a world that shouts, do more, work harder? Because your boss will say it tomorrow morning, you know, and, and, and you'll feel it when you have an argument with your spouse or an argument with somebody that you know, family, because you've not 
give them enough attention. Like, you know, there will always be that message thrown at you. Do more and work harder. Be better. Well, we daily have to remind ourselves of the truth that we don't, that we live now under a gospel of done, not a gospel of do. Jesus said, come to me, all who are burdened, and I will give you rest. You know, he modeled it for us, how you live every day in the good of that, because he, so many times it's scripture tells us, he, he withdrew from the crowds, he departed, he had moments of rest with his father. To be still for a bit in the presence of the father, find rest. As Christians, the joy we get to have is we get to start each day with eternity. I love that phrase. You know, we get to start each day with eternity. And it's not this elusive, like, very spiritual, strange thing. We start each day with eternity because we get to sit at the feet of Jesus. That's what we get to do. And it's not because of all our amazing activity and our great, you know, Bible study. We just get to do it because we're his and he's our dad. That's what we get to do. So when I wake up in the morning and straight away get bombarded by all the things I should do that day, straight away it comes, or forget, or reminders of what I didn't do in that conversation where I said what I shouldn't have said, and those things start coming. We fix our eyes on Jesus and we whisper, it is finished. And then we say it again louder if we need to. No, it is finished. It is finished. When we rehearse the truth of the gospel daily, we literally ram it into our souls. We, we can resist the lie that says your success and what you do forms your deepest sense of worth. Because it doesn't. Those things don't define you. Jesus on the cross, let's get practical, was victorious over sin and shame and guilt. So when you feel those things, because we do, what is our response? If he was victorious because of the cross over those things, when we mess up and condemning thoughts start circling, what do we do? We stand firm. It's what scripture tells us to do. And we say, no, Jesus' victory is my victory. I will repent quickly if I need to because I know that I do mess up. But it will not rob me of joy. And it will not define my day. And it will not rob me of what opportunities God's got for me. That is the good... You know, when in a perfectly ordinary day, feelings of inadequacy come. And I don't know if this is something for some of you that you've, you've been gripped by for a long time or whether for some of you it's just background noise. But it's how the enemy loves to undermine the power of the cross over us. Feeling not good enough. See, when I feel not good enough, which happens more than it should, resting in the truth of the gospel of done looks like this for me. And I speak to myself and I say, yes, Hannah, let's face it, you, in and of yourself, are totally inadequate. It's not big news. Don't be surprised by it. It's why you needed rescuing. Get over it. You know, that is the truth, isn't it? Why are we surprised? We had to be rescued because we were a bit of a mess. So when I hear those things, when I feel condemning thoughts, when I, don't, when I feel like I'm not good enough, we fight. We fight with the truth and we say, yeah, you are an utterly inadequate. Get over yourself. And my failings make me run back to the cross rather than harder into my striving. In Christ, we are loved so completely that our wretched lives become absorbed into his perfect one. 
I'm going to say it again. In Christ, we are absorbed so, we are loved so completely that our wretched lives get absorbed into his perfect one. What does that mean? His perfect record, his perfection has become your perfection, my perfection. So when I stand before the Father one day, when I stand before God one day, he will see me as perfect. So it doesn't matter what someone says to me this week all the feelings of, of inadequacy I can get because one day I will stand before God who created the universe and he will look at me and see perfection. So who cares what anyone else thinks? I don't need their approval. I have his. I am his. We daily need to let that echo into our hearts. It is finished. It is finished. Our the cross also redeems our activity. This is really important because, you know, how do we actually live? Yes, we live in the good of that truth. Yes, we believe that truth. How do we actually live? Because we all have responsibilities. We all have bills that need to be paid. Do we just stop doing things, say no to promotions, say no to going to prayer meetings? Well, Paul actually finishes 1 Corinthians with this. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So inactivity is not the antidote to our busy culture that says do more, work harder. That's not the response to just, fine, I won't do anything. The antidote is that whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God and not to make a name for ourselves, not to get an identity for ourselves because, as we've established, a verdict on our life has already been given. So we run hard and we abound in whatever it is that God has called us to do because we get to do it as his co-workers. We're saved and freed for purpose. And it's our motivations in our heart. You know, the heart of the matter, the matter of the heart all that it is always our heart Matthew 5 16 Jesus said let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your father who's in heaven I am not the star of my show we are not the stars of this show but what we give ourselves to what we invest our time in with our days that we've got left it's an opportunity to make God look great and we have to look at our own lives and we've got to discern whether the pace of our lives is sustainable and wise. And we get the Holy Spirit to help us with that. So we'll all need a moment, I think, to reflect sometimes. Sometimes we're forced to because we get ill. Sometimes we just know that we're exhausted and we have to stop. But we have the Holy Spirit to help us find a rhythm of life that is healthy. The answer is not throw yourself into everything and, and, and you know, do everything you can. The answer is, God, what, what's going to make you look great in my life? What can I give myself to that you've called me to? For what, what is it that you've got for me? Help me. Our rhythm of life needs to have regular periods of rest built into it. Weekly rest, termly rest, building in time away. God wants us to physically rest. Yes, he wants us to rest in his truth. He also wants us to physically rest sometimes, be refreshed regularly. You know what? He wants us to sleep. This might be big news to some of you. 
He wants us to sleep. Do you know why? Because he built us to need sleep. Okay, and some of you might think, well, thanks very much. I'd love to get more sleep if I could. But, you know, he, sleep is a declaration that we're not God because we fall asleep and it's kind of dead to the world almost, and it carries on without us. Wow, like, that's amazing. God doesn't sleep, but we, we are not God and we need our sleep. So some of you, to take home one thing, sleep more. <laughs> I know I need to. <laughs> sleep more. Be rested. The pace of our lives, they shouldn't be reckless. So for some of us, we might need to stop doing some things. But for some of us, we need to start doing some things. Start giving ourselves to things with a fresh energy and a fresh passion for his glory. And for some of you maybe today who haven't yet responded to the call of the cross, there's some of you today who, who would say, actually, I'm not a Christian. I, haven't, I can't live under that gospel of done because I haven't, I'm not, I've, yeah, I've not received Jesus. If you would say that you don't have the security of knowing that your sins are forgiven, you might not have worked it out and you might still have a thousand questions, but if you, God's done something in your heart because you can feel something happening and you believe that Jesus' death means something for you today and you want in, what's stopping you? It's nothing you've done. You don't deserve it. Welcome. That's who we are. Get prayed for. Come, give your life to Jesus. We receive it by faith. We'd love to pray with you after the meeting finishes. Let's pray.